Well, I want to begin by thanking all of you that watch us online, literally around the world. Uh, the Hills has three campuses in Tarrant County at North Richmond Hills, South Lake, and West Fort Worth. So if you are ever in the great city of Fort Worth, I hope you will come and visit. Uh, but thank you for being so faithful every week just to view us online. Now, I have to say, without question, December is the greatest month of all months because it has the best holidays. Now, everyone knows it has the best holiday of all, which is Christmas Day, but that's not the only great holiday in December. For example, did you know that last Friday, December 5th, was National Ninja Day? Now, maybe you say, well, I didn't see anything. Of course you didn't. They're ninjas. But they had their day. Maybe you didn't know that tomorrow, December 8th, is National Brownie Day. Now, I am totally on board with National Brownie Day. If any dessert deserves its day, it's the brownie. The only problem is National Ice Cream Day is not until Saturday, December the 13th. So you get your brownie tomorrow and you have to wait five days to get ice cream with it. Now, come on, America. We can do better than this. Somebody needs to get those two days together. Did you know, though, that next Tuesday, December the 16th, is National Chocolate-Covered Anything Day? So how awesome is that? Did you know that December the 18th, not making this up, is National Wear a Plunger on Your Head Day? It's probably also National Christmas Office Party Day, which explains that. And then comes the best day of all, Christmas Day, the ultimate holiday. But did you know the very next day is National Boxing Day? Now, doesn't that make sense? You have tolerated your extended family all through the holidays. You told yourself, we're not going to have any blow-ups Christmas Eve. We're going to get through Christmas Day. But by December 26, you're ready to take somebody out, right? And now the marketers want to help. Look, you can go to the store and you can get Roach and Ant Killer. Because we all have that one ant that just needs to go. Every family tree has some squirrels in it. And if you say, well, my family doesn't have any squirrels, well... You're the squirrel. (laughs) Did you know that Jesus had some folks in his family tree that you would think the authors of Scripture would want to take out? But the truth is the story of Jesus turns everything upside down. And if you'll stay with me all the way through Christmas Eve, the next several weeks, we are going to see that Christmas turns dark into light, turns foolishness into wisdom, turns bad news into good news, and it means out gets in. Welcome to Upside Down Christmas. We're going to be living for several weeks in the first two chapters of Matthew. 
Now, if you had never heard anything about Jesus and you said, okay, I want to study this guy that everyone talks about, so I'm going to buy a New Testament and I'm going to start on the first page, this is the very first line you will read. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then you're going to read about 40 lines of the father of, the father of, the father of. And you're thinking, if he's such a great guy, why does it start with such a boring beginning? Oh, but it wasn't boring to the original readers. Matthew was writing especially to a Jewish audience. And to a Jewish audience, nothing was more interesting and important than a genealogy. They used genealogies in that day to establish all kinds of legal matters, like who can inherit property and who can carry on the family name. It was so important that even sacred assignments were determined by it. And so in the Old Testament, for example, when the children of Israel come back from Babylonian exile, some guys show up and they want to be priests. And the first question they're asked, where's your family records? Well, we don't have our family records anymore. They said, well, then you can't be priests then because you can't prove you're descended from Levi. It would be today like trying to survive in this country and you don't have a social security number. Or you're overseas and you don't have a passport. You see, no true Messiah in their mind could just show up and announce himself. The first question they're going to ask him is, where's your family record? Prove you are connected to the people of Israel. And in particular, prove that you are a descendant of the line of David. The story of Jesus does not start somewhere in a galaxy far, far away. Matthew starts with what I'm going to tell you is real history, real people. It's in the record. You can check this out for yourself. Some of you have heard the name of Bill Maher. He has a talk show on HBO, and he's a very uh, vocal skeptic of all things religious and an announced atheist. And so on a recent show... He called Christianity a fairy tale. There was a devout believer on that show with him, and he said, Bill, read Matthew chapter 1. That's not a fairy tale. The family of Jesus is made up of real, authenticated people from history. And that's what Matthew wants you to know. This is not a fable. Jesus has An established family record. He tells you who the names were of the patriarchs and the judges. He starts then with the monarchy and tells you who all the names were. And then he starts after the exile with all the names all the way up to his birth. And you you figure out real quick, he's not just presenting a genealogy. He's presenting a theology. Look at how it ends in verse 16 and 17. So Jacob, the father of Joseph... The husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. And thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile in Babylon. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And so what he's really doing is preaching a sermon. 
to people who are looking for a Messiah. And he is going to turn what they expect upside down. He's going to make a case for Jesus as Messiah. He's going to build a table and it's got four legs and everyone is critical. And here's the first. He's saying in this family record that God came in the flesh. That Jesus was a real person with real ancestors. See, most religions are built on principles that don't really depend on whether the founder of that religion ever even existed. Christianity is not like most religions. The fundamental tenet of Christianity is that Jesus, a real person, a real man from a real town called Nazareth with a real mother named Mary, was actually God in the flesh. That deity poured into humanity on Christmas Day. He was born of a woman through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Matthew is careful to make it clear that Joseph was the legal father of Jesus, not the biological father. Did you catch how Matthew did that? All through, he says, the father of the father of the father of. Look at verse 16 again. He said, Jacob was the father of Joseph. Joseph was the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus. He's saying Joseph was not the biological dad of Jesus. Now, he did adopt him, and legally, under Jewish culture and system, Jesus became the son of Joseph in the line of David. But Christmas is claiming something so huge that eternal God was once an embryo in the virgin womb of a teenage Jewish girl. That the one who spoke the universe into existence had to learn how to speak. That the one who holds the cosmos together was so frail and vulnerable. He had to be held in order to survive. It's the most amazing claim in history. And the affirmation of the incarnation is absolutely critical to becoming a Christian. That's why for 2,000 years, before anybody can be baptized, they are asked one question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? John put it this way in 1 John 4. This is how you can know God's Spirit. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ came to earth as a human is from God. And every spirit who refuses to say this about Jesus is not from God. Matthew is saying right off the bat in this family record, God 
came to our neighborhood. God came in the flesh to work out a plan. That's the second leg of the table. That what Matthew was doing is saying Jesus is not just an afterthought. He wasn't heaven's plan B. But he has always been the center and the focus of history. That's his whole point about 14 generations. Now, be honest, he's, histac- or he's historically inaccurate. He skipped a few names. He did it on purpose. Again, his audience is Jewish people. And to them, the number seven is perfection. So 14 is double perfect. Now, what he's saying is through every major period of our history, through the patriarchs and judges, through all the kings, through all the time after the exile, God has been working a perfect plan. Now, it didn't always seem like God was in control. It didn't always seem like God was up to anything, but God was always in charge. He has been directing the affairs of the world, including in particular this little nation nobody ever thinks about. In fact, if you were going to read the book of Matthew in the original Greek language, do you know literally how it starts? Book of Genesis. And what's every reader thinking? Oh my. Jesus is the beginning, the real beginning of everything. It all starts with Jesus. That God has been at work in obscure places with obscure people. You don't even know most of those people. God knew. So that he could bring all people to the real beginning. In other words, you do not start to understand history by starting with the birth of the world. The only way you can understand history is to start with the birth of the ruler of the world. Because God came in the flesh to work out a plan to bring in a kingdom. That's why he starts with David instead of Abraham. He put David before Abraham. Jesus, the son of David, who lived many years after Abraham. Why? Because he's connecting Jesus to the most precious promise in Israel. God spoke to David about his son Solomon in 2 Samuel 7. said, he's the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And every Israelite clung to that promise. That God said David's throne would last forever. Now, we've been under a lot of thrones since then and a lot of empires. And we've been oppressed and we've been put down. But God promised that David's throne would last forever. And so somebody's coming. A Messiah. He's going to make things right again. But all of David's descendants had proven to be colossal disappointments. But the thing about God, broken people can't make God break His promises. And out of all the mess in David's family, God was going to birth a Messiah. Do you remember what the wise men said when they showed up in Jerusalem? Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? 
Matthew is establishing the right of Jesus to reign, the right of Jesus to sit on the throne. And by the way, we don't do that enough. We talk a lot about Jesus was born to be our Savior, and He was, but He was also born to be our Sovereign. He was born not just to forgive you of your sins, but to take charge of your life. Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 2. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Paul says, you want some good news? Here it is. Jesus Christ, after he went to the cross in your place and died for your sins, conquered death. And now sits on his throne. And that's good news. Christmas to Matthew is not just the birth of baby Jesus. It is the arrival of King Jesus. And Matthew wants you to see right now what someday. The whole earth is going to see when Jesus comes back that he owns the throne. The king has come down and he has turned everything upside down. You see, he came in the flesh to work out a plan to bring in a kingdom that leaves no one out. That's not what they were expecting. They were expecting Messiah to come and kick the Romans out. To kick the Gentiles out. To kick the unrighteous and the unworthy out. And Matthew turns everything upside down by saying, Do you remember who all is in the family tree? Wouldn't you expect Jesus to have a perfect family tree? Because that's how kings back then did things. They erased some names from their family records so that it would look good. Like Herod, who was king at that time in that area. Now, he wanted to be considered king of the Jews, but he wasn't a Jew. He was from Edom. So he just went and took his genealogy and said, take him out, take him out, take him out. That's what kings did. Matthew does not exclude any of the unsavory names. There are some men in that list that were terrible kings that he mentions. But more shocking, more scandalous than who Matthew doesn't exclude is who he does include. Genealogies in that day were always patriarchal. They were always male-dominated. We don't have any idea today how much Jesus changed the status of women. In Matthew's day, women were second-class citizens in every way. Why bother putting their name in a family record? They can't inherit anything. They can't own anything. But Matthew includes women. Because Jesus is starting to turn some things upside down. But then the shocker is, well, Matthew, if you're going to put women in, I don't get it. Because women cannot enhance genealogy. All they can do is infuse it with controversy. But if you're going to put some women in, put the heroes in. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. Oh, no. 
Matthew goes to the closet and he gets some of the ugliest skeletons out of the family story and puts them right there on the page. Like, for example, verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Do you remember that story in the Old Testament? Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. And when her husband died, and when Judah would not fulfill the obligation to give her another son as a husband, she dressed up like a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law to get pregnant. How scandalous is that? Then verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Do you remember her? She didn't just dress up like a prostitute. She was a prostitute. Her name is mentioned eight times in the Bible. And six times it says the prostitute. Now I looked up that word in the Hebrew and in the Greek. And do you know what it means? Prostitute. who saw what God was doing around her and took a courageous step of faith toward God. Then also in verse 5, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, Ruth was a noble woman as far as we can tell. But she was a Moabite. And every Jew, when they heard that word, remembered the Moabites were birthed out of incest. With Lot and his daughters. They were considered some of the most wicked people on earth. If you showed up at the temple. And you had Moab on your passport. You weren't getting in. And then. Matthew goes. And gets maybe the darkest story. In the family. And pulls it out of the closet. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. The soap operas can't keep up with this story. Deception, lust, covenant-breaking, murder. Why do you have to bring that out of the closet? What are you doing, Matthew? See, by virtue of gender and race and nationality and morals, every one of these women is an outsider. As a PR man, Matthew is doing a terrible job of image management. Why would you pull those skeletons out of the family closet? Because Matthew wants you to know that the Messiah came out of the mess. Jesus didn't just come for sinners. Jesus came from sinners. He came to earth because of people like his own relatives. But he didn't come to take them out. He came to bring them in. And their mess would become a part of the message. And so in 1939... Montgomery Ward asked an ad exec to come up with a little poem to give to kids who came to sit in the lap of Santa at his department store. 
And the little poem over the years became quite popular. And so in 1949, the brother of that ad exec said, I'm going to put it to music. And he came up with a little ditty. He tried to get some people to record it. No one was too interested until finally a singing cowboy named Gene Archer said, I'll put it on an album. And it became the greatest selling Christmas carol of all time. What was it? Rudolph. What is it about that little song that you cannot not sing it when you hear it? Is it the pluckiness and the courage of the little deer? It's more than that. It's the story of grace. Rudolph was a reject. Remember, they would not let him join in the reindeer games. Because he had a flaw. But Santa took his flaw and tied it to a bigger mission and said, Rudolph, you will go down in history. That's what Matthew is saying. The greatest Christmas verse in the Bible is this one. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. And the greatest word in the greatest Christmas verse is whoever. That's us. We are all citizens of Whoville. Because unlike other faiths, the birth of Jesus means out is now in. See, the theology of Christianity is completely upside down. In other religions, you have all these rules so that you can decide who's out, who doesn't measure up. Who needs to be excluded. But in Christianity. Scandal is not just a part of the story. Scandal is the point of the story. It starts with scandal. His birth was a scandal. He lived all his life with the gossip. That your mama was pregnant but she wasn't married. His family tree is full of scandal. And Matthew, the man who wrote it, was a tax collector, which in that day was scandal with capital S. But none of them are taken out. All of them are written in. And their mess became part of the message. That can turn the world right side up. You see the scandal of redemption. Is the redemption of scandal. Christmas means we don't have to ignore scandal. We don't have to cover it up. We don't have to hide and pretend. It can be redeemed. And included in the story. And let me tell you, that's very good news for the people listening to me right now. 
Because even though you look like you got it all together, here's the truth. You were jacked up and messed up and screwed up. And Matthew is saying, so welcome to the family. Because God has seen it all. And there's nothing in your history that is going to shock him. There's no part of your story he cannot redeem. So, I'm going to date myself. How many of you are old enough to remember typewriters? We're the ones who remember who Johnny Carson is, too. And so when I was younger and I had to turn in a paper, I had to use this thing called a typewriter. You young people, you can look it up. It was invented by Gutenberg, I think. And <laughs> you would punch this little metal arm and a, it would come up against the paper against a ink ribbon and it would leave a mark. In the early days, I think it was hieroglyphics and then we discovered letters And the problem is, because none of us are perfect, we would always make a mistake. But you couldn't turn in a paper with mistakes. So what would we do? We would get this little bottle called liquid paper or whiteout. And we'd paint over that mistake and we'd blow on it. And then we'd hit that button again. (laughs) But here's the thing. That little white shiny scab was always on that paper. You could hold it up to the light and you could see the mistake. And in some ways, that's what our lives and our stories are like here on this earth. We've got our mistakes. And we move past them and God redeems them. But we don't have to pretend they weren't there. We don't have to act like it never happened. Instead, God's going to redeem the mess and make it a part of the message. But you need to know something else. In heaven, they don't use typewriters. They have something in heaven called the delete key. And that mistake is erased and you will never know it happened. And some of you listening to me right now, could use a Genesis. And Christmas is saying, well, what are you waiting for? Come on in. So, Father, I don't know who it is, but the Holy Spirit's heavy on me right now that somebody came today, is listening today online, that really needs to hear this word. There's stuff in their past that's hurting, that's causing them to feel like they could never be a part of your story. And Father, I'm speaking in the powerful name of Jesus against that deception right now. I'm praying, Father, that the Holy Spirit will break through and speak the truth that mess is a part of the message. And so, Father, break through and call out today those that you are actually calling in. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's all stand up. 
And so we're going to have prayer teams down on this level and up at the balcony level. And we're inviting you right now to come to the scandal, the scandal of grace. To come and share your story, to come and admit your struggle, to come and declare that Jesus is the Son of God and be baptized into Christ. And let me tell you, when you are in Christ, you are in forever. Please come while we worship.